All right, we're going to have a slightly truncated class today because I am going up to uh, go over some stuff with the kids because it's Kids Day. That's exciting. So let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a bit of a thaw, and we pray that we would remember uh, as we drive through the slush and wet that uh, we're on the way to spring and sun. And Lord, we pray also that we would always remember you are with us through every season of life, that uh, you are always bringing us uh, further and further toward uh, uh, eternity of glorifying you. And Lord, being more and more like Jesus, and, and we pray that even as we go through trials, we would remember uh, that you are refining us uh, as with fire and that we would be thankful for uh, your, your being at work in our hearts, in our lives, and Lord, that we would cling to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A minister of the gospel once made use of the following illustration to show the awful nature of sin. Suppose, he said, a person went to a blacksmith and said to him, Sir, I wish you to make me a very long and heavy chain. Have it ready by such and such a day, and I will pay you cash for it. The blacksmith is pressed with other and more important work, but for the sake of the money, he commences to make the chain. After toiling hard many days, he finishes it. The individual calls, Have you made the chain? Like, in person, not on the phone. Uh, yes, sir, here it is. Well, this is very well done, a good chain but it is not long enough. Why, it is just the length you told me to make it. Oh, yes, yes, but I've decided to make it much longer than at first. Work on it another week. I will then call and pay for it. Thus flattered with praise and encouraged with the promise of full reward for his labor, the blacksmith toils on, adding link to link till the appointed time when his employer calls again and as before, praises his work. But still he insists that the chain is too short. But, says the blacksmith, I can do no more. My iron is used up, and so is my strength. I need to pay for what I have done and can do no more till I have it. Oh, never mind. I think you have the means of adding a few links more, and then the chain will answer the purpose for which it is intended, and you will be fully rewarded for all your toil. This is like the Ted Mosby sermon illustration of the 19th century. Uh, Skipping a little bit. Okay. With this remaining strength and a few scraps of iron, he added the last link of which he is capable. Then, says the man to him, the chain is a good one. You have toiled hard and long to make it. I see that you can do no more, and now you shall have your wages. But instead of paying him the money, he takes the chain, binds the workman hand and foot, and casts him into a furnace of fire. Such, says the preacher is the course of sin. It promises much, but its reward is death. And each sin is an additional link to the chain which will confine the transgressor in the prison house of hell. Now, therefore, be ye not mockers, lest your bands be made strong. Isaiah 28, 22. Providentially, there was in the congregation that day a blacksmith who had lived a very wicked life. He was much excited and declared at the close of the meeting that the whole discourse had been directed to him. He wished to know who had been telling the preacher all about him. The preacher had never even heard that there was such a man. It is recorded that the blacksmith was soundly converted. We don't preach like that about sin anymore. So we were talking in question 15 about uh, exactly how Man fell and, and uh, all of mankind in Adam's first transgression. And uh, I left you with the promise of 
uh, delineating between federal and seminal headship. And so I know everybody's going to be upset if we don't get to that. So uh, basically, there's two different main schools of thought as to how it is that you and I could be guilty of Abraham, or rather Adam's sin. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, and the first one is called federal headship. This, to me, is the one that's the most biblical and, and the most sound. Uh, it's the idea of a uh, representation of a group under a federation or covenant. So you have one person make, remember we said covenant's kind of the overarching grid for reading the scriptures. One person who has the authority making the covenant for a whole group. Maybe it's a whole nation and they are all under the covenant. And then if, say, the king of that nation breaks the terms of the covenant, the entire nation, having been entered into that agreement, is now guilty of having broken it. They're all going to uh, answer for it. The, the curses that were laid out in the covenant will, will come on everyone. Uh, and I mean, we might think today a, a country's president might be the federal head for, for a nation, uh, representing and speaking on behalf of that nation uh, and, and making binding agreements and deals or breaking uh, agreements uh, on behalf of the nation. And it's not insignificant that Adam's name is Adam, uh, Adam. And when Adam was created, God appointed him as the representative head of the human race. So he's, he is man, really. And when he falls, his sin is as the covenant federal head for mankind. Uh, and so that, that ended at the fall. He was no longer the head, but uh, that is one view, federal headship. The other is called seminal headship. Does anyone have a Bible and quick access to Hebrews chapter 7? Is it going to be Sam or is it going to be only Sam is looking? It's going to be Sam. <laughs> 7, 9, and 10. You'll remember this as the weird tale of Melchizedek, the high priest like indie high priest. What was the chapter? Uh, chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Yeah, he wasn't one of these corporate label high priests. <laughs> one might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So the story that we go way back is uh, Abraham is on his way back from busting out uh, his nephew and conquering the kings of the valley and they've got a bunch of spoil. Uh, they were like, oh, we're taking back our guys and we're taking a bunch of your stuff. And on the way, they bump into uh, Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem and the high priest of God Most High. And he's not part of the priesthood uh, of Israel because that doesn't exist yet, right? That comes with Aaron as the first high priest. And yet we see Abraham paying a tithe, one-tenth of all he had gained, to Melchizedek. And so when the author of Hebrews uh, says that Jesus is in this other priesthood, he's saying that even though he is a son of David, even though he's a son of Abraham, we still see that Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. It's a weird situation where um, Levi himself, who receives tithes, 
paid tithes through Abraham. So Abraham's there, and the seed, the potential for the Levi, the, the priestly line, is inside of him. And in a sense, he pays a tithe to this other priesthood. So when Abraham says, here's 10% in his loins or in, you know, uh, potentia, somehow his great-great-great-grandson, not even, great-great-grandson, whatever, great-grandson is uh, paying tithes by him doing it. Uh, and, and that is the seminal view that, okay, you have somebody, not because they are the head or the, the representative, but because they kind of could contain Russian nesting doll style, their descendants. And so Abraham then in him is this, you know, everybody comes from Adam, right? So in Adam, when he sins is all of us. To me, that view is less compelling and it's not rooted in covenant, but it is kind of in line, I guess, with what the book of Hebrews is saying here. And uh, why not both? I mean, I, both views have some merit. And, and I think it's left a little bit vague as to how we're guilty of Adam's sin, but it's not left vague as to that we're guilty of Adam's sin. Now, the main objection is going to be, that's not fair. I actually wasn't there, right? And how can you say I did something or I'm guilty of something I didn't do or I was party to something when I wasn't you know, even a twinkle in Adam's eye at this point? I mean, I'm millennia off. And so it's unfair, some might say, to charge one person with the sin of another. Charles Finney used to say this. We can't have the doctrine of uh, original sin because it's unfair for God to charge one person with someone else's sin. And I think we touched on this last week. What is the answer to that objection from a Christian point of view? Um, didn't God charge Jesus with our sin? Exactly. If you don't want one person charged with someone else's sin, if that's always unjust, well, then you don't have salvation for the sins you have personally committed because the only way you can have it is that your sins were placed on Jesus' shoulders. And this thing happened that supposedly God can't do because it's unjust. So that's an invalid objection. Finney, by the way, went so far as to say, yeah, that's right. God couldn't charge Jesus with my sins. That's why I'm bound to change my own heart. And that's why whenever you see someone say, my hero is Charles Finney, turn around and run away and don't listen to what they teach. Didn't Paul say in one of his um, epistles that in Adam we all sinned? Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly biblical uh, teaching. So, yeah, you have to skirt ways around these clear teachings if you're going to reject original sin. Uh, and you have to really start doing, you know, pretzel-looking hermeneutical contortions to avoid the doctrine of imputation, that our sins were actually imputed to Christ, and he paid for them on the cross. I mean, this is, this is what the scriptures teach. Uh, from the catechism on the catechism, uh, I wish I had a PowerPoint at this point, because every time I, I brought these up, I'd bring up that old meme of exhibit, the old dog, I heard you like cars, or I put a car in your car so you can drive when you drive. No, nothing? No? Thank you for the chuckles. Um, whom did the first Adam represent in the covenant of works? He represented all mankind, descending from him by ordinary generation. Write down Romans 5, 12 through 14. 
Adam represented all of mankind descending from him by ordinary generation. He represented as the federal head, all of mankind. And whom did the last Adam represent in the covenant of grace? All of his spiritual seed given him of the Father. And for that, you'd want to write down John 17, 6. So one of them, all of mankind, is party to that sin. Uh, and that sin goes out to all of mankind. In Christ, all of his spiritual seed, which the Father gave him, are then the, the sins piled back on him, and he deals with them. This is perhaps the most important doctrine in all of Scripture, and we've just talked about it uh, in a kind of semi-awkward and, and academic boring way, and for that I repent. Uh, but let's move on to the next question then. And we're going to get somewhere here because uh, I was looking through my notes, and this is what I wrote about questions 17, 18, and 19. Covered all three questions by simply reading the proof text and discussing them. The content of these questions and answers had been covered ad nauseum by our discussions of questions 13 through 16. So, hey, we'll be up to question 20 like next week. Uh, question 16. Into what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into a state of sin and misery. That's, that is a powerful statement. The fall brought mankind into a state of sin and misery. And have you noticed how, like, just pathetic, in denial, sad clown show our culture has gotten lately trying to convince themselves, no, we're free and happy. No, you're bound in sin and you're miserable. Uh, and it's, it's wild as people, the people who are most committed to that farce and that, that fiction when they come to faith, are the ones who are just most uh, ecstatic and, and uh, can't stop singing the praises of Jesus. Yeah, Roger. Um, I've been watching a show on Netflix called Forensic Files. That's one of the things that proves to me that we're totally depraved when you see some of the petty things they do on that show with their crimes. It's a show about crimes? It's called Forensic Files. They prove whether someone's innocent or guilty. Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the people are certainly, but even people who would say, no, 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 I don't, I don't murder and dismember people, I'm a good guy, are still in a state of sin and misery outside of Christ. Uh, and, and that's, I think, something that, that for many people that escapes them. They, they want to hold up a yardstick and say, oh, there are worse people than me, therefore I'm okay. Uh, I've been watching a show on Netflix called The Good Place, and it's all based on uh, a, a few people wind up in heaven who are supposed to be in hell because of a uh, just clerical error, and they're trying to fit in. It's very funny, but uh, it's all about getting enough points to be in the good place instead of in the bad place. And I think that's how most people, uh, if they believe in an, after, in an afterlife, would, would think of things, rather than we're all in a state of sin and misery. Not most of us are okay, except for those few uh, you know, killers. That, that's, that's a pretty uh, radical notion, I think, to the world right now. Uh, in fact, I remember, what, a year or two ago, seeing a uh, wire story. It was in a number of news outlets, and it was basically, church does what churches have always done, which is they had a, I think it was Child Evangelism Fellowship, 
had like a good news deal and they brought in like a bunch of kids and told them, you're sinners and you need Jesus. Good news, Jesus died for your sin and you can live forever. And you know, it's basic like telling kids the gospel. And a kid went home and told his mom and the mom called the news and it became this huge thing. This church group told a kid that he was a depraved sinner. Yeah, that's the message the church has always embraced. You are in a state of sin and misery, and Jesus came to save you from that state of sin and misery. And if that, that's distasteful now to our culture. If you read the thing about the chain, it doesn't, it doesn't connect with our culture's kind of default spirituality at all. But deep down, everyone knows they're building this chain. Somebody, everybody, flip over to Romans. We're going to look at two passages. You can't talk about Romans 3 and Romans 5. Who is in Romans 3? You can read verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says that those who are under the law, that every mouth they be stopped, may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. So what the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be silenced, the whole world held accountable to God. Uh, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. All right, that's a sentence fragment, but we're only looking at the first part of the sentence. Um, and after we get through that uh, speed round of 17 through 19, question 20 is the best question with the best answer ever. Who is the redeemer of God's elect? So things are going to get less depressing. But for the moment, and this is perfect for, you know, the beginning of Lent, the first Sunday of Lent, just on the, this side of Ash Wednesday, um, to talk about and think about this state of death that Sin comes into the world through one man. You know, do you remember that uh, outbreak movie in the 90s? Yeah, one monkey. Just one little monkey bites somebody and boom. Now, through that one person, it's spreading. At first, it's only, uh, you know, like body fluids and contact. And then there's the scene in the, the movie theater and somebody coughs. And there's like the germ eye view going around the whole movie theater. And I didn't go to a movie theater for like nine months. And uh, it just spreads. It spreads like ripples through a pond, and with it, it brings death. Uh, and so death spreads to all men because all humans have sinned. How did this happen? By the abuse of man's free will. Uh, and ultimately, there's always going to be the desire to point the finger away and say, I'm going to go follow all the way back to the beginning, the fall. Why are you hiding in the bushes? I can see you, idiots. Oh, um, what happened was this woman you put here with me gave me the fruit and I ate it. Eve? Oh, this snake you put in here, he said I should eat it because it was good. Snake? He's seemingly, the devil's left him and he's just like, can't even do that. Doesn't have so, so there's always this tendency to pass the buck and to point away. But, I mean, if you look at the, the prophets, they're very good at pointing out that we are uh, the architects of our own sin and misery. 
Uh, Hosea 13.9, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. We are self-destructive in this way. We know the wages of sin. We know the end of that road, and we keep hopping on and saying, hey, maybe it'll be different this time. Our present state is pictured in a number of different ways. If you're taking notes, I jot these down. I'm just going to give them to you quick. Ephesians 5.8 says darkness. That's where, where human beings are apart from Christ. Ephesians 2.13, distance, far from God. So we're in the dark and we're far from our creator. John 3.18 and John 3.36, we're under condemnation and wrath. So we're far from him in the dark and we're kind of hiding like Adam and Eve because we know God has wrath against sin. We know that instinctively because a perfect God, any God at all, would have to be perfectly righteous and therefore have wrath against sin. Uh, it's a state of bondage or captivity. Isaiah 49, 24 to 25 lays that out. So you are in the dark, far from God, the sword of judgment dangling over your head, bound and shackled, and then Ephesians 2, 1, also dead. So there's not much hope for you or me apart from Jesus coming and taking the dead and bringing you back to life, unshackling you, removing the chains, closing the distance by coming to us because we sure couldn't go to him and then replacing the darkness with light. All of that is done unilaterally by God and that is the good news. But we're not to the good news yet, so let's just keep on in the dark here. Uh, these are the freedom that the world offers, these things. Darkness, distance, condemnation, bondage, and death. Be free, follow your heart, be who you are, just, you know, to the, to the nth degree, and you'll be free. You'll, you'll be happy. And this sin and misery is what the, the world is. So, so there's a sense in which you're, you're kind of in a tiny cell as an unregenerate individual, and there are a number of options, and the world celebrates all of them but one. One option is denial. I'm not in a cell. This is a beautiful mansion. This is Club Med. I mean, it's, it's a little bit, I mean, it's cozy is what it is. It's nice. And so you put up, you know, a couple of pictures you printed out from the internet that beaches, you know, like, yeah, you know, like someone does in their cubicle and they're like, oh, I'm happy. Don't worry. And, and, and then you're in denial. Another is to say, I like it here. I chose this. I'm, I'm thumbing my nose at God and, and I'd rather be trapped like this because this kind of bondage is, is better. Uh, or, or the other is to say, yeah, okay, I'm under condemnation. Maybe I'm going to hell. All the cool people are going to hell. I'm going to live to the fullest now. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The other option is to repent. Turn to God and say, can you let me out of here? And he will. And, and that is the gospel. Again, yeah, Roger. So when Kant um, said that there was a chasm between us and God, he was correct in that manner. Kant said there was an unpassable ontological gap, and he was incorrect. Yeah, there is certainly an ontological gap, uh, ontology being the study of what is. It's a weird word. Uh, there's certainly a, a gap between us and God, right? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He is infinite. We are finite. In every way, there's a gap, but it's a gap that, I mean, his name was Immanuel Kant. God with us Kant. There's a gap that God crossed when he uh, many times, even before the Incarnation, but ultimately in the Incarnation, when he came, dwelt with us, 
lived in this sin-cursed world with us and for us, kept the law perfectly on our behalf, died uh, on our behalf, paid for our sins, and rose again. And he never looked at what his name meant. Yeah, well, I I agree. By the way, that show we're watching about uh, The Good Place, Kant is the hero. The way that you get more points is you take an ethics class from this guy, and he's just obsessed with Kant. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Ezekiel 16, 4 to 5. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. That sounds like a great position to be in, where we want to stay. Read the remaining passage there, which we'll look at when we get to question, uh, question 20, and it becomes one of my favorite, most beautiful passages. But that really describes, I mean, a, an infant abandoned, cord not cut, still, I guess, attached like to the, all that stuff I walked by in the bucket and didn't look at. And, and just, I mean, horrible thought, wallowing in the blood in the field. But then remember this, it's not just a helpless infant. If this is a picture of us, this is a rebellious this, is a, this infant is giving you the finger and shouting curses at you, okay? And still, when God walks by, he's moved with compassion and does all these things, picks us up, washes us off, clothes us, cares for us, nurses us. Uh, is, is there a little pearl of wanting to please God that can be shined up and given good use? This is often a question that's asked when we talk about evangelism, that like, is, does everyone have this innate desire to make God happy, and that's why we do good things, and you can latch on to that, pump that up, and use it as sort of the beginnings of saving faith. What do you think? Yeah, I, mean, I think that, I think that we, I think that the problem is, is that, you know, the fall kind of confused who God is for us. You know, I think that if you look at the natural person's life, they're really busy worshiping their idols or themselves. Uh, so I think that I think that there is a compulsion to worship. I think there is a compulsion mm. to you know, you, know, you know bring things to some kind of altar. I just think that the altar or the thing being worshipped isn't God. You know, it isn't Jesus in most cases. It's something else. So I think that there is something inside of people that knows that you know you know your your energy and your time and your money is supposed to be spent doing something. Right, so why are so many prominent atheists so uh, kind with their, their money and philanthropic? And, and yeah, because there's something in them. Um, like Roger said, it's fractured, and, and you kind of sussed that out. It also often turns us to self-worship. Uh, even, even the things we do uh, to, to kind of win the love of our fellow man or even to score points with our creator, they're stained by... Uh, the wrong motives, and they're stained by sin and, and sinful desires. But the question remains, is that something that we can connect with, or is that something we want to say, look, that's bad, repent of that, and get rid of it? If I, if I see that someone is doing an awful lot uh, of good, or they're even dabbling in things spiritual, is that an on-ramp for me to talk to them about Jesus? Or is that just a way for me to point out, look how sinful you are. You're even trying to earn your way to heaven. I think both. Okay. I think that 
Yeah. When Paul was talking to those folks, wherever he was, about um, the monument to the altar to the unknown God, and then he used that as an on-ramp to tell them about who the real God is and, and tell them about Jesus. So it seems as though that could be the end. If they're struggling around and, you know, maybe just need to be redirected or, or, or told some things that they didn't know. Right, yeah. So he says, I see that you are every way religious, or some translations say you're in every way superstitious, and you worship lots of gods. You're, you're, you're really, really devout. You've even got this altar to an unknown god. Let me tell you about that one. And it becomes an on-ramp. Uh, and at no point does Paul ever say in that conversation, shame on you for having all these altars to all these he says, no, I, I, I get it. You want to worship God. You're, I just need to tell you how to do it in knowledge, not in ignorance. Uh, and, and perhaps it's something that we could do more. People are still in always superstitious or religious. Even in a world where everyone checks the box, spiritual, not religious, that, yeah, that's a religious view, <laughs> that you're spiritual, not Just like no creed, but Christ is a creed, just a bad one. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not real. I don't believe in religion. I believe in, okay, well, your spirituality, your desire to be spiritual shows me that you know that you are inbuilt. You are, your, your ROM has got something that's reaching out to something bigger than you. So let's start there. Um, but keep in mind, Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Psalm 81 but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. And then in Romans 1, again, we read about God giving people over to their own wicked desires. So, yes, it can be a point to start with, but you can't build up from someone's spirituality or someone's religiosity to faith in Christ without that miracle happening. Because even though there's this yearning, it's still a yearning that's happening in the dark at a distance from God and bound and dead. So they still need that miracle of being raised from death to life, of being unshackled, of being brought into the light and the distance between them and God being clo uh, closed. What about a little help from God, right? You know, they're, they're doing well. They need just maybe a little, a little push. John 5, 39 to 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So in ourselves, our nature is enmity to God, and we have to keep that in mind. When we're dealing with our own sinful desires, that that still lives in you, and when we are dealing with those who we want to proclaim the gospel to and bring them to faith, there is something that really resists true devotion to God, even while we feel this pull. It's a very complicated, very uh, uh, messy thing. And to get in there with somebody and say, yeah, I recognize that, that a lot of what you're doing is, is motivated by and powered by an innate desire to reach back out to your creator and, and uh, touch fingertips with him, like in the Sistine Chapel, and at the same time, the way you're doing it is completely fractured and, and uh, polluted by the enmity to God that's in your heart. And so the only solution then is to acknowledge 
my state is a state of sin and misery. I'm in, like we read on uh, Ash Wednesday, in the slimy pit, and there's no getting out until I just say, I give up. I'm covered in slime down here. I need you to reach down and pull me out and hose me off and, and make me yours. So that, that's a, um, it's a difficult truth. The church is moving further away from it, especially you know, big churches with a lot of people in a broad following that are kind of a little bit involved, that you know, just flocking to the church for the programs, for the pep talks. There's very little talk about the fact that there is enmity to God in our hearts and that there's, that's something to be repented of. It's not, you know, God wants to give you uh, every day a Friday, a boost, uh, a hug. No, God wants to raise you from the dead. He wants to kill the old you and raise a new creature to life. Uh, let's go through these questions, 17 through 19, real quick. Uh, and then I got to go strum my guitar with the kiddos. I, I think you're going to like uh, kids' service. I'm really excited about it. So, 17, wherein consists the sinfulness of the state? Whereinto man fell? Wherein consists the really awkward circular grammar wherein this question is written? Uh, what's the sinful state that we fell into? To end it with a preposition. The sinfulness of that state whereinto man fell in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of the whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which precede them. So there are three elements here. The guilt of Adam's first sin. We've already talked about that the lack of that original righteousness that, that Adam and Eve had, right? the original innocence with true freedom of the will to, to be in harmony with God's will. We lack that. We have uh, the guilt of the sin and a corruption of the whole nature, which we call original sin. Uh, we might call that total depravity. It reaches out with its tentacles into every part of who we are. And then add to that the actual sins we've committed that come out of that. All of those together are our sinfulness. That's a pretty bleak picture to paint. Great jump starter for Lent. Uh, next question, 18. Uh, and, and please read these passages. Uh, maybe after I go, someone, uh, you guys can take turns and read them uh, because they all really build uh, a pretty watertight case, I think, for these things. 18, what is the misery of that state wherein to men fell? We say that it was a state of sin and misery, but what is the misery? All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. All right. 19. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the state of sin and misery? God, having out of his good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the state of sin and misery, and to bring them into a state of salvation by a Redeemer. That, that is great news after 17 and 18 
You could see reading this, if you were going week by week with an unbeliever, someone who'd never encountered the gospel, they might not want to come back and hear any more. Like, I know this stuff is all true, but yikes. Okay, I, we're, we've established I'm sinful and miserable. Can we move on now? And yet, without all of that, the message of the gospel is, it, it falls flat. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't show the majesty of what Christ accomplished when God in Christ reconciled the world to himself. If it was, you know, I mean, we've all been reconciled to somebody. Uh, you're right, you get mad at your buddy, you exchange words, you avoid each other for a few days, and at some point you're like, buds, buds, reconciled, right? That's how it works. This is something entirely different. This is reconciliation between the, the self-destroying uh, enmity toward God, uh, wallowing in the blood, continuing to rebel while posing as righteous with a truly righteous God. And yet he did not leave all mankind to perish in the state of sin and misery. He did not walk by and look down at the infant wallowing in its blood, go, ew, that's gross, and keep on walking. Rather, he came and rescued us. In fact, let's uh, read the rest of that passage. Who can open to Ezekiel 16 quickest? Maybe it's me. Somebody get it? 16, starting with verse 4. Okay, so we see that, no, the answer is that he did not leave us in, to perish in the state of sin and misery. Uh, if we kept reading that passage, then they, she begins to trust in her beauty and her, her power and her royalty, and yet he still 
doesn't say forget you. He continues to uh, forgive, to love us, to uh, take us from death to life, from misery to joy, and uh, bring us into his presence. It's really, it's really a great, great story. I love to tell the story. And uh, that's, that's that. Uh, maybe you want to take some time to read those um, passages from those three, 17, 18, and 19, those three questions. Uh, or maybe there's some discussion. Uh, if, um, so if there is, if there's some uh, discussion about, I don't know, having elected some, or I don't know, whatever, whatever anybody <laughs> wants to, to bring up, uh, be, be kind to each other, be excellent to each other, like Bill and Ted. And uh, I'll see you. Uh, Sean, you're in charge. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Are we in trouble? Does that mean you're the teacher's pet, Sean? I'm probably being punished for not showing up for men's group yesterday. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, what? 17, 18, and 19? Yeah. Who wants to read Romans 5, 19? disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Okay. Sounds like an upper passage. What did you read? Romans 5. Anybody have any comments on this? I'm an ex. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense right now. It seems pretty straightforward. How about Romans 3.10? As for it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. <laughs> pretty much sums it up right there. We all suck. <laughs> yep. This is going to be really uplifting, I can tell. <laughs> Ephesians 2.1. And you are dead in the trespass, trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, uh, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I think I read one hand too. It's about a long bit. Is that Ephesians 2 1? Mine's not that long. Yeah, it was 2 1 and 2. Oh, okay. <coughs> I actually kept going. <coughs> yep. Keep saying the same thing over and over again. <laughs> hard to believe people don't believe that that's what scripture says because it says it so often. Yeah, and it doesn't just say it in the New Testament. No. Psalm 51 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my, mo did my mother conceive me. <laughs> that wasn't very nice of her. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew 15, 19. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Yeah, that's Fred Letter in my book. Mm -hmm. Jesus said that. Well, well, there you go. Anybody who has the thing, I only listen to what Jesus says. He's still getting into it, too. All right, let's move on to 18. More Old Testament. Genesis 3, 8 and 24. And they heard the sound of the Lord, uh, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the God among the trees of the garden. And verse 24. Uh, first, they realized they had sinned. He drove them out. Uh, he drove out the man, and at the, the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every uh, and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Reminds me of babies that cover their face and think they're invisible. <laughs> oh, you mean that doesn't work? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. So does that mean the, the fall of man didn't destroy the garden? We had, he had to kick us out of the garden because the garden was still the garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds like. Well, there is a flaming sword there. I'd assume the flood would, though. Yeah, probably put the sword out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's a terrible sword. I don't know if it could be put out. Okay, Ephesians 2, verse 3. Among whom also we have once conducted ourselves in the lust of our own flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Children of wrath. Yep. All right, Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is not is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So is that saying we're cursed by the law because we can't keep the law? Yeah. So everyone who keeps tries to keep the law is cursed? Yeah. Yes, because you can't. Remember when he was um, writing Galatians, that was, that's what he was refuting, was the Judaizers. Who said you had to be circumcised and all that to be a Christian. Well, it's appalling that they want that, right? Because the beginning of Galatians starts with, you know, then, or the entire Galatian church going back to the law. Uh-huh. Right? They had heard the gospel. <clears throat> And they knew that you're not saved by the law, you're saved by grace. And they decide to go back to the law, which I think is what's really crazy. Someone would make that decision to put that weight back on their shoulders, you know, walking. Yeah, they, they prefer the heavy yoke. Yeah. <laughs> cool figure. But also when it talks about the law, though, it makes me remind me of we're all under the curse of the law that was put on our hearts. We all have that law. I think 
Even Richard. All right, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. Wow. That is a classic. That's the, that's the whole gospel right there. One sentence, really. <laughs> All right, Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into, uh, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Wasn't Matthew 25 where the people thought that they were doing God's will? Mm-hmm. The sheep and the goat. That's kind of frightening. I'm glad I'm a sheep and not a goat. Okay, on to 19. Second Thessalonians 2. 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Saved by grace. You know what Pastor Zach said though about hearing the bad news and the good news? You know when someone asks you, do you want to hear the good news first or the bad news? Me, I'm a weird one because I like to hear the bad news first. It makes the good news sound better. Right? Anybody else? Thank you. Class dismissed. Yay. <laughs>